Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Oh, that's a bit muted. <laughs> great. Yes. Look, the sun's shining again. Isn't that great? It's great to see you. Great to be with you. Thank you for coming today. Um, thank you, Paul. And thank you for the team for leading us. And Mark, thank you for leading us in the act of remembrance as well, which um, was much better than the one that I had prepared because I hadn't communicated with anybody about that this morning. So, Mark, you did a much better job than me. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you can just have a think. I wonder what you think your priorities are in your life. I wonder what you think is the most important thing or the most in, important things. Um, when, whenever I need to have a bit of a rethink or have a, just a bit of an assessment about what it is that's an actual priority in my life, you know, I can say certain things, but the, the way to find out is really to ex, ex, examine and explore just exactly what I'm spending my time and my energy and my money on. I basically have those three resources. It's the same for all of us. We have these three resources that we give. And uh, we have time, we have energy, and we have money. And uh, we make a choice in our lives, don't we, about what we're spending our time, energy, and money on. I wonder if you just know off the top of your head what it is that you choose to spend the big chunks of your time and energy and money on. I wonder what that is for you. If you don't, a really good way to find out is to just look in your diary. Um, and to look in your, on your bank statement. Okay? And, and that's a really great way of just understanding how it is that we spend our time and energy and money. These things are finite resources. We have a certain amount of them, and, uh, and we choose to spend them, spend them, use them in different ways according to what's important to us. Um, this morning I'm going to talk a little bit about this whole subject, and I just want to pose a question. You know, it may be that when you sort of sit and think about your life and you sit and think about the church and you sit and think about what it is that God's calling you to do, you ask the question, how much of my time or my energy or even my money, how much of my time and energy and money can I give to God? Do you ever think about that question? Be honest with me, just give me an... I know everyone's a bit, you know, subdued, but give me a nod if if that's a a question that you do think. How, How much of my time, energy and money do I give to God? And I wonder sometimes, because I find myself asking that question, I mean, how much time does he want from me? I wonder if it's actually a different question that we need to be asking. Because if you think about it, it all comes from him anyway. And what I want to think about this morning is just reversing that, flipping that question around from not how much of my time and energy and money can I give to God, but how much of God's time and energy and money that he's given me can I give back to him? Because it's all his anyway, to start with. Have you ever been given a really big budget and the freedom to go and spend it? Has that ever happened to you at work or maybe at home? You know, here's, here's a big chunk of money, here's a big chunk of resources. You know, just go and decide how to... I mean, it's a little bit like that with, with our own time and energy, isn't it? God gives us this stuff and says, now, you've got the privilege of choosing how to spend your time, how to spend this time that I've given you, how to spend this money that I've given you. You can free up, we can free up resources, we can free up ministry by doing that. And that's by way of an introduction, because this is part two of a series, we've been, uh, a mini-series within a big series. Do you want to pop my uh, slide up for me, Charlie? Thank you. 
so much. Um, and we've called it, the, the big series is called Leading Our Community into Life. And we've looked at a whole bunch of things. Um, we've talked about this a few times. This is a little bit of a test for you now. Apologies if you're here for the first time. Um, but for those of you who have been here for the last few weeks, we've been talking about who trusted rulers are. The, thinking of ourselves using this phrase, trusted rulers. People who are following Jesus, who've chosen to put him first in their lives are called to be trusted rulers. Come on now, I need your help here. Shout out one of these things. Trusted rulers are people who know their identity, authority, thank you. Very good. Identity, authority, and assignment clarity. And if you want to catch up on that teaching, you just go back on the website from the last few weeks and you'll pick up on that. In every context we go into... This is who God is calling us to be. Partnering with him in his mission to save the world. Knowing and being the trusted rulers he calls us to be. And specifically last week and this week I'm talking about what trusted rulers look like when they're in community. In the context of a loving church community. What does that look like? And uh, we looked at this, uh, this slide last week. which is This is a list of the characteristics of the early church according to the passage that we're just going to read again in Acts 2. Chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. If you'd like to turn that up, um, we'll just look at that again. Um, we read it last week, and this is a continuation of the same basic teaching. Um, up on here, we've got a sort of bullet point list. Let me read from 42. Um, it's talking about the early church. It's talking about the disciples and all of the people that chose to follow them and, and chose, to f- chose to be part of their community um, after Pentecost at the, beginning of, at the beginning of the church. This is not long after Jesus has gone up. So this is Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, it says, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These are the distinctive characteristics of a loving community of people who know who they are. They know their identity. They know their authority. They know what God has given them. They know what the authority has released them into. They know that they're not just sort of pawns in a game. They're actually rulers who are partnering with God in his mission. And they know their assignment clarity. They know where they've been sent. They know where they've been called to, to, to be, to act this out. And uh, this slide lists what those characteristics look like in the context of the church. And we've been focusing on what that looks like here in the context of our church. And as I said to you last week, whenever we do a newcomer's event, we say, this is how you get connected to our church, Winchester Vineyard. We say there are five things you need to do. Four are, impo- four are the key ones that I'm looking at, and there's a, a fifth one as well. We say if you come on a Sunday, if you uh, join a small group and make friends, build community, if you help make it happen by being part of one of our teams... And if you give your money, then we will consider that you, if you're working towards those things, those, that's what functional membership looks like around here. We don't ask you to sign a dotted line. 
We don't ask you to sign on anything or tick anything. And we don't, by the way, use this as a, as a tick list to go around checking people by either. But we just say, if you want to be part of this church, if you want to be committed, if you want to be part of the community here, this is the sort of thing that it looks like. And this is what we're looking for. People who are working towards this. And so last week, I uh, talked about what happens when we gather on Sunday, when we worship together just as we have this morning. And our main intention when we come together is to worship, is to show our, collectively show our love for God. We gather in his name, we celebrate what he's done. Last week we had communion together. And although often we receive something in return, our starting point isn't to come and receive, our starting point is to come and give. Come and give our love. Also we talked about small groups and how we gather in small groups And although we do some similar things, there's a very different dynamic going on there which helps us to grow in community and friendship. Helps us to express our love for one another and find people who can be friends with us and walk through this journey with us. And today I want to expand on what that kind of community looks like practically. Some of the ways that we practically demonstrate our love for one another. And I want to focus on two things. One of them is about serving on teams. And there's a verse here in John 13. Actually, I'm going to read 34 and 35. This is something that Jesus said to his followers. He said, A new commandment I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. In other words, people, Jesus is saying, people are going to know about me through the way that you are. The way that you are with one another. My reputation is at stake here. Jesus could be saying, if you paraphrase it. He cited himself as an example of how to love. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. What does that mean? Well, in the immediate context of this passage in John, it comes just after the Last Supper, where Jesus has actually got down from his table and he's washed the disciples' feet. Think about the significance of this action that he's taken. It's a dinner. There are no servants there. So Jesus gets down from the table, takes off his shirt, starts washing feet. Now I don't know if that really translates culturally for us. I don't know how often you've washed someone else's feet, for real. I mean, I've washed people's feet a few times, sort of symbolically, in a church context. I can't think of... Any time when I've really washed somebody's feet that it's, that it's been anything close to what it might have been like for Jesus. The impact of that action. It doesn't really translate from first century Palestine. Foot washing back then was a whole different ball game. It was a job for the lowest of the low. It was a job for the servants. People who were, I suppose, in society, society even below where the disciples were at. Certainly not a job for a rabbi or a teacher or a master, which is how they view Jesus. And yet he gets down and he literally, and I mean literally in the proper sense of the word literally, takes on the role of a servant. He shows his love for them by making a sacrifice, sacrifices his dignity, sacrifices his status, his comfort, his time and his energy. All of that sacrificed to show them, really show them practically what love is. This, of course, was a prophetic action. I mean, it was important in itself 
And it pointed the way to the thing that Jesus would do on the cross for everyone. To make an even bigger sacrifice, as Mark has already alluded to this morning. And when he says to them, I want you to love one another the way I've loved you, he's basically asking them to do the same thing. And he's asking us to do the same thing, to show our love for one another by making some practical sacrifices, doing things that actually are going to cost us something. Now that's normal for anybody who you happen to be in close relationship with. But in a church community like this, that can be a challenge, can't it? However, there are loads of ways we can show our love for one another practically. You've heard us talk before about how it takes 35 people or so every Sunday just to make church happen. I wonder what time you think people start showing up here on Sunday morning. Who who comes first? Does anyone know? Who's first here on a Sunday morning? It usually is the worship team, closely followed by the PA team, the house manager and the stewards, the cafe team putting the coffee on, the hosts and the welcomers, the children and youth leaders who come and set up the rooms and the equipment and the activities. They've probably done some preparation at home before they came as well. Uh, The welcome team, the hosts, and the people who come to pray. There's a whole load of people who come, who give up their own time and energy to come early or stay late just to make sure church runs smoothly. There are those of you who stay afterwards at the connect area or the welcome desk. The cafe team are usually still here. In fact, they're, they're among the first to arrive and usually the last to leave after the washing up. And there's the house manager locking up. And I know that many of you gladly do this. You give up your time and your energy to come and cheerfully serve and gladly serve. It's a really practical job that we do to make, help make church function well. But the real motivation needs to be because we're modelling our lives on Jesus, who is the ultimate servant who took on the nature of a servant, didn't have to, gave up all his status, gave up all his glory, and came as a servant. You've probably heard me say this quote before, but it's one of my favourites. It's something I heard John Wimber say many years ago. He said, whether you lead the worship or you clean the toilets, the pay is the same. I can tell you I've done both in my life, plenty of times, and it's true. Don't get paid for either. (laughs) Teasing. But it's true. It doesn't matter what you do. It's about following Jesus. And uh, it's not just about Sunday mornings either. There's plenty of people in our community who give up time and energy through the week to serve in wonderful ways. Through ministries and projects that impact all sorts of people, both in and outside of the church. We have toddler groups here that provide a fantastic community and baby groups for parents and carers and little ones. We've got compassion ministries Keith and Francis are out on the streets with their team. There's a storehouse, which you've heard about already this morning, the new food store. I don't know if you know, but we host a group here in partnership with local agencies for, um, for kids and for mums who are um, hanging out at the Women's Refuge. Um, we've got street pastors, we've got Healing on the Streets team, city pastors. We've got Johnny and Beth and Karis Kids all further afield. And we've got wonderful Streams of Hope team. People who come in here give up their own time and energies to spend time praying with people and helping people who are dealing with pain and issues. This, guys, this is an amazing church with so much going on. And nearly all of it run by volunteers. And so serving in the way that Jesus taught us 
It's just one of the wonderful ways of being involved. If you're not in one of those teams, we'd love you to seriously consider joining one. We're just actually experimenting with an online sign-up. You can actually sign up on. You can sign up at the desk if you like, um, or you can go online. I've put a link on our Facebook pages last night, so you can go and find that there. So if you want to get involved, if you're not involved and you want to be involved, it's a real easy way to get stuck in. Now, practically, there could be a number of reasons why you might be sitting here thinking, "Oh, I don't know if I can really do that. I don't know if I can really make that happen." Maybe, maybe we think our faith isn't strong enough, or we're not good enough Christians. We're not close enough to God or we've got too many problems to deal with. I can promise you that wherever you're at in your faith journey, there's something here that you can do. If you want to be part of this community, if you want to play an active role, if you're, whether you're, if you're seriously exploring what life is like with Jesus, then wherever you're at, we'll find a role for you to do. Come and get involved. Maybe it's not the serving that you mind, but it's actually, for whatever reason, you're just a bit nervous to commit to the time. Maybe you wonder if you'll be able to keep up a regular commitment because of family, timetable, chaotic, whatever. Actually, just to put this in perspective, usually one of these teams takes less than two hours once a month, and we ask you to commit for six months. So we're talking about a 12, up to 12 hours spread over six months in the year. It's not actually that, that much time. It's worth putting it in the diary. Lastly, may, maybe you're already involved in something, but God is asking you to consider stepping up your commitment in some way. Maybe the group that you're in is already full and has a waiting list. I wonder if you know what the needs of your group are, where the gaps are. Have you talked to the leaders about that? Could you be part of the solution? Could we be part of making more kingdom ministry happen? Is there something we could do to facilitate that? Is there something that we're involved in where an increased commitment might just make a really huge difference? Now, I'm not doing this to twist anybody's arm. That's not what this is about. Just a challenge to ask the Lord. Stop and think, what am I doing? How could it grow? Is there a part that I could play? Remember the trusted ruler's triangle. This is where assignment clarity comes in. It's all about asking the Lord, where do you want me to serve? What do you want me to do? Where's my slot here? You know? And committing to a team is a great way to meet new people. It makes a massive difference in people's lives and it expresses faith and Demonstrates love very practically. Most of all, though, most of all, it imitates Jesus, who's the one that we serve. And there's this wonderful passage in Philippians that I'll just read to you, where it talks about Jesus, who, in the, being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather chose to make himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our example of sacrifice and service. And he, uh, I think he calls us to do the same. And another way, the other way that I want to talk about this morning, uh, that we demonstrate our love for one another practically, is, uh, is by what we do with our money. Is it me or has it suddenly gone a chill in the room? <laughs> Hands on your wallets, everybody. <laughs> you can, oh, as I said at the beginning, you can always tell what's important to somebody by looking at how they use their money. And the verse in uh, Acts, the verses in Acts that we read at the beginning, it says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
I really believe this passage is describing a culture of generosity where no one was in need and possessions were shared. There is some suggestion that this is an early form of communism. You know, that this is kind of state-controlled, all equal. I don't think it's that at all. The giving was voluntarily. It wasn't compelled. You didn't have to do it. It was a choice. And if you read around this in Acts, you'll see that people still did have their own personal possessions. It says they still met in their homes. Many Christians owned their homes, it says in Acts. So we're talking about a voluntary generosity here, about people who are willing to share their stuff, share their possessions and share their resources for the sake of one another and of those in need. I think this is the lifestyle they saw modelled by Jesus. He didn't have very much in the first place. And as you know, our church here runs with finances that are very generously given and shared by many of you in this community. You've heard me say before, if you buy into the vision, buy into the vision. Let's just look at a passage in 2 Corinthians um, that just encourages us in, in this whole area of our finances and our giving. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 to 8, and it says this, Remember, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you, Paul says, should Give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under any compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abandon every good work. There are some really important points here about how we give our money. I just want to pick up on three quick things. The first one is that phrase, each of us decides what we should give. No one else has the right to insist what you should or shouldn't give. It's an issue for each of us to talk to God about. As a leader, I can try and help us work out a little bit about what the Bible is saying, and I can challenge us to go away and listen to God. But we don't do manipulation here, you know that. This is between us and God. How we handle our money is actually a massive part of our maturity as followers of Jesus. And how we give is really important. So I love this. For God loves a cheerful giver. Are you a cheerful giver? Come on, be honest. Uh, uh, how, we actually, how we actually do this, the, the heart attitude that comes through is really important. Do we do this? Do we give out of an abundance of joy and an overflow of blessing? Or do we give grudgingly out of a sense of duty because it's like what the Bible says and we need to do it? Does any, has anybody ever... No, I won't go there. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you, and she's not here to defend herself today. Jo is so much better at this, at this than me. The cheerful bit, I mean. You know, it's not that I don't love to give, I do. I, I have a, quite a neutral attitude to money. I don't get that emotional about it. I do make decisions and sort it. But Jo, on the other hand, gets really excited about giving. She gets excited about thinking about gifts that she wants to give to people. She spends ages thinking about what the right present should be. Sometimes she just comes up to me and says, I've just been praying and I think we need to give this to that person. And I usually go, okay. <laughs> and then I go along with it. And she gets such a kick from it. And I get a kick from seeing her get a kick from it. I'm just trying to tell my face to catch up, that's all. <laughs> the attitude that we have when we give is really important. Because it does reveal the true nature of what's going on in our hearts. 
and how we approach our money and possessions. Like I said at the beginning, is it ours to give away back to God or is it God's in the first place for us to choose how to spend? How much of what God has given us can we afford to keep ourselves? I mean, that's quite a radical question, isn't it? When you put it like that. It's in the Bible, though. You know, James 1 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights. It's a challenge, but it's important. How much of what he's already given me do I need to hold on to? And the third part of this is that giving results in a blessing. God is able to bless you abundantly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. This is the, pretty much the only area in which God says it's okay to test me on this. In other parts of the Bible he says, test me. You might have heard this phrase before, we can never outgive God. You will never be able to do that. Now we try and teach this to our kids. We try and teach them this principle that if you give, you, know, you will receive. But we don't always know what that blessing looks like. So earlier this year, our youngest gave up his bedroom for about eight months so that somebody could come and live with us. Somebody who needed a room somewhere to stay. He moved into his brother's bedroom. Um, he quite enjoyed that for a couple of days. And after that, <laughs> after that, he decided that that was a bit more of a challenge. So we had a few conversations along the way that went along the lines of, when can I move back in my room? Not yet. Okay. It's not fair. But do you know, JJ, that um, you know, God says when you give you will receive a blessing back. What does that blessing look like? (laughs) Is it money? (laughs) Basically, he's not interested in any other blessing than a financial blessing coming back to him. I said it might be money, it might be something else. JJ, you never know. At which point he got on his knees and prayed, Lord Jesus, please can it be money? (laughs) Here's another example. You might have heard of this guy. Uh, Rick Warren, he's a pastor in the States, runs a big church called Saddleback Church. And he wrote this book uh, at the beginning of the sort of 2000s, uh, which kind of went on to be just uh, the biggest selling book in history, I think, or one of them anyway. Um, This is what he said. This is an interview with him that he gave in 2007. I'm just going to read you directly what he said. He said, when the purpose-driven life became the best-selling book in the history of America and the best-selling book in the world for three years, it brought in... Tens of millions of dollars. And I, Rick, had to ask myself, what am I going to do with all this money? So after the book became such this big... So he, basically, I made some big decisions. First decision he, he said we made is that we're not going to change our lifestyle one bit. He says, I still live in the same house. I've lived in for 14 years. I drive an eight-year-old Ford, and I don't own a Rolex or a guest house or a boat or a jet. The second thing I did was to stop taking a salary from Saddleback Church, my church. This, had been fi- this was five years before the interview, so going back to about 2002, 2003 now. The third thing he says I did was to add up all that the church had paid me over all the 25 years that I'd worked for them and give it all back. And I did that because I knew I was going to be put under the spotlight and people would be questioning my motives. And I didn't want anybody to think that I do what I do for money. And the fourth thing we did, he said, was to set up three charities, including one that helps people who have been infected with HIV and AIDS. 
And I read a different article by him as well. I couldn't find it when I searched it, but I can remember what he said. Where he said, he learned this principle, the principle that you can't outgive God as a young man who didn't have very much money. He said for years and years when the church was struggling, we, we was getting off, off the ground, we didn't have that much money. And we learned that principle, it's not ours anyway. Just be generous, you can't outgive God. He says, I don't believe that God would have trusted me with this had I not learned that principle earlier on in my life. You know? Isn't that a challenge? Isn't that a challenge? It's so radically different from the messages that we generally receive from our culture about money and resources. From the fear that people live in that they maybe won't quite have enough. They always need a little bit more. But as, as God's trusted rulers, we know that our identity is all wrapped up in who we are in God. It's not about money. It's not about the stuff that we've got, the place where we live, or our possessions. It's not about our job or our status. All we need to know is that we're sons and daughters. And as sons and daughters of the king, we will never be without. We will always have what we need. There will always be enough. And we don't have to stress and strive to try and get more. I'm not saying it will always be easy. I'm saying that God will always be with us. And when we live out of that place, practically, then God can use our resources, his resources, in just amazing ways to further his kingdom. And as I said, we as a church are funded by the generosity of so many people. And thank you for what you give to the kingdom of God in this context, the Winchester Vineyard. Thank you for the money you've given today and this month indirectly and the money that many of you have faithfully given. And I know that it doesn't stop there either for many of us. It goes on over and above giving to the church. You know, when we do our, um, when we do our reports, we did it earlier in the year, we'll do it again next sort of uh, March, April time, we'll report on this year's budget. And we, we add up the amount of money that we, uh, that, that we received and that's gone through our books, and, and then there's a whole chunk extra which doesn't really come, well, it kind of comes through our books, but it's not part of our budget. It goes straight out to Africa to Caris Kids. A whole bunch of you give over and above. Over and above. And then there'll be other things that we don't know about as well. And then we'll try and add up all the time. The time that's given in terms of volunteer hours. And there's some, because of your generosity, you know, we're able to just make sure that as well as covering our staff and our premises costs here, we're able to make sure that significant amounts of money flow out to the different things, projects that we're involved in, people that we support, things that the church is involved in. Just some really practical advice here about giving, just some real practical pointers. Three things about if you, if you, how you give to Winvin. The first thing is that Joe and I won't see how much money you give. We don't look. We don't want to know. Um, unless in extraordinary circumstances, we don't need to know. And, um, and so we, we, yeah, we, we just don't look at that stuff. Somebody else looks at it for us. Um, giving regularly and in a planned way really helps. <laughs> if it's possible, it's not always possible, and we know that. Our budget runs from January to December, and we'll be setting it shortly for next year. Um, if, you're, if you're able to plan it and do it regularly and consistently, then that really helps us. And lastly, if you pay tax, we get a massive bonus from the gift aid. It makes a big difference. And so if you do pay tax and you're able to gift aid, that makes a big difference too. I realise that that's not always possible. We do have giving packs on the desk at the back, and we have gift aid forms available 
do come and ask more if you want to. Like I said, this isn't arm twisting. This is just simply the challenge to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us about our resources. You know, what, what more ministry could we free up? What else could God do? Are there things that he wants to talk to us about here? We'll, we'll have some time in a few minutes to really listen to the Lord. There's a few things I think he wants to do today. But one of those things I challenge you to do is just to go back and ask him. And so lastly, as I finish, I just want to go back to that passage in Acts, the one that we read at the start. Over the last couple of weeks, we've covered a number of different areas of church life, these distinctive characteristics. But there's just two particular verses that I want to flag up as I finish. Because I really believe that when the Holy Spirit is present in a community, there's going to be genuine love expressed between one another. There's going to be conflict resolution. There's going to be issues dealt with. There's going to be the giving of time and energy and money. Friendship, acceptance and welcome and serving and all of these practical things. And there's going to be the power and the presence of God. It's not that one is more holy and one is more practical. There is no sacred, secular divide. This is just what happens when the presence of God is in the place. That people are nice to one another, that people choose to build friendships and build community and reach out and share their time and their energy and their resources and serve one another. And the Spirit's present. It says everyone was filled, verse 43, with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. You don't just have to be an apostle, I believe, to perform a sign or a wonder. We've done that teaching earlier in the year too. Everyone can do that. The gifts of God are available for everyone. And when the Spirit's present, His presence is here, and we have an expectation that God will come. That he's here among us. That if we need stuff to happen, that we can come to him with those, with those needs. An expectation of the supernatural. An expectation of his kingdom breaking in. Some of you have experienced that already today. And there's time at the end of this morning just to wait on God. And just to push into that. We know from this teaching that everyone, is, as I said, can perform signs and wonders. That's part of carrying the authority that God gives his trusted rulers. There's an expectation then, and there's an expectation now that God is present to meet with his people. And lastly, it says that the Lord, in verse 47, added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were growing daily. They were growing daily. The community of God's people living out this status in love together is really attractive. And if you're here and you're looking for God, you'll find him among his people. And so if you're here today and that's a journey that you're on and you want to do something about that, we would love to help you take the next step on that journey. I wonder what steps God is asking us to take. These are just a few things from this morning. Maybe it's something else. Maybe he's asking us to think about joining a team or increasing our commitment to a team. Maybe he's inviting us to review our giving or even to start giving. Maybe there's a heart attitude that needs to change somewhere along the line. Maybe he's asking us to follow him. We've got some time. Why don't we stand together? And the worship team, why don't you come back and lead us in a couple of minutes in a song. Let's just be quiet for a sec. And let's just reflect on what, he's, what he might be asking us to do. The guys are going to lead us and then we're going to have some time for ministry. Believe the Holy Spirit is here. He's present with his people. We have plenty of time. 
And he's ready to do business with us. So Holy Spirit, we give you once again our hearts. Thank you for your presence with us. Come search our hearts, we pray, Lord. As we try and follow you better, as we try and get closer to you, as we want to meet and connect with you, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come search our hearts and challenge us and speak to us. Lead us, not with, not with manipulative, emotionally driven thoughts, but just with the clear voice of the Spirit, the clear voice of the Spirit to us today. Thank you for your presence, Holy Spirit. By grace alone, somehow I stand Where even angels fear to tread Invited by redeeming love Before the throne of God